This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 195, Yogic Principles of Transformation for Life and Recovery. Whether you're in recovery or not, many yoga principles and traditional texts can support you in your growth and personal transformation. Interestingly, the principles of recovery and yoga sometimes intersect. So to talk about this, for today's episode, I sat down with Brian Hyman. Brian is a yoga therapist with 11 years of experience facilitating thousands of yoga classes, meditation session, and process group at a prominent treatment center for addiction recovery in Southern California. He also has more than 13 years of personal recovery from addiction himself. He has written articles about recovery, yoga, and spirituality for Whole Lifetimes, Mantra Wellness, and Yoga Digest. He has been interviewed about his innovative and dedicated work by Origin, Malibu Times, and Recovery. Recovery 2.0. And Brian is also the creator of a bunch of different courses on Insight Timer, including one called Recovery Principle for Our Purposeful Life, and many more. His new book, Recovery with Yoga Supportive Practices for Transcending Addiction, is coming out in 2024. So stay tuned for that. If this episode helps you in any way, share it and help someone else on their journey. You can leave a review on iTunes for them to find this podcast in general or this particular episode or you can share your takeaways on social media to also help people find it i always love to read your takeaways on the episode so make sure that when you take a screenshot and share something you've learned tag at on and off your mat podcast so i can see it all right if you're ready to find more happiness no matter what you have or not make or not accomplish or fail to let's get to today's episode with brian hi brian hi erica thank you so much for joining me today thanks for having me such a pleasure. Can we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey for listeners that don't know you yet? Sure. My name is Brian Hyman. I live in California. I'm a yoga teacher. I just wrote a book about the work I've been doing for the last decade or so. I teach yoga at a treatment center in Malibu. So most of my work teaching yoga has been in addiction recovery and treatment. I also do Gaudi meditations. So I have some courses on Insight Timer. My courses are about recovery, yoga philosophy, mindfulness, happiness, gratitude. And lately I've been adding some more work about uh, Buddhist psychology. Awesome. Is there anything you'd be willing to share with us about your personal journey that kind of led you to want to teach for recovery? I'm sure you have your own journey with this in a sense of like, there's a reason why we're drawn to certain demographics, right? Yes, perfect question. That's one thing that I thought about quite a bit when I got sober in 2009. And a big part of my personal recovery was being able to get onto my yoga mat to really start to process a lot of what I was going through in early recovery. I went to 12-step meetings. I had a sponsor. I worked the steps. and I took all the suggestions that are usually given to people in early recovery, especially along the 12-step path. And I was finding a lot of healing and a lot of the inner work that I was able to do on my mat was crucial. It was essential to my happiness and joy and the mm -hmm. new life that I was starting to find on this path of recovery. So since yoga was so important to my recovery, that felt like the next right thing for me personally to do with my life was to try to bring that to other people. And so when I became a yoga teacher shortly thereafter, I had about nine months sober. I thought about where I'd want to teach, and that was my intention, to bring the healing benefits of yoga to people in places that can't get to it or don't know about it, and specifically in people 
in recovery. And so I've been on that path for quite a while now, about a dozen years. And it's very humbling. It's very enriching. It's very rewarding. And I've taught other classes in different places. I've led some retreats and workshops, but most of my work has been essentially in this field. And it's been nice to just work in this field for me personally, because it's both professional, it's also personal. And there's nothing like working on the front lines to try to help mm-hmm. save some lives because I've been there and try to give back what I've been given. It's what makes, I guess, what I do really worthwhile above mm-hmm. and beyond the, the paycheck and above and beyond the, the things that come with a job. It is what we call in yoga. It's our, you know, our spa dharma. It's our personal purpose. And I really feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. So it feels good. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So you talked about how yoga helped you process and how it's a practice of healing and how it teaches inner work. What it is about the yoga practice that helped you and that you teach your clients and students to tap into, to move towards recovery or to move forward in their recovery journey? What I was finding when I was getting sober was that a lot of feelings and emotions were coming up. And I didn't have the proper tools to handle those things. Mm -hmm. I had never been to a therapist prior to this. I had no idea what that was about. I didn't know what self-work was, inner work, inner healing. I didn't know any of these things. But I was hearing about them, and I was starting to read about some of these things. And what I was finding specifically how yoga tied into this was I would hear something, for example, about grief or loss, or sadness, and how to overcome these things, or work on these things, or process these things. And again, I didn't have much experience with how to do any of this, but something magical really started to happen on my yoga mat where I was processing. I would have a memory, a thought, a feeling about something, let's say it was loss, or where someone I loved was no longer with us. I would start to feel that in a certain pose. And instead of reacting in a way that I didn't want to feel it, or I wish I could feel something different, or I want to get off the mat and run away and just and go play a video game or do something different, I would just breathe with it. And I would just sit with it. And I would just do my best to give the feeling or the memory the respect that it deserved and to overcome it, to heal it, to transform it. So I really just started to see this stuff. It wasn't just a physical practice, yoga. And the philosophy wasn't just things that were written thousands of years ago. This was relevant today. These ancient teachings were really, really contemporary in that that's the beautiful thing about these universal principles and teachings. Things that were written 2,000 years ago saved my life in 2009. (laughs) And still today, you know, all these years later, I still read, I still study, I still meditate. These ancient teachings still help me find recovery is an ongoing process. I didn't just get sober in 2009 and then all of a sudden I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, this is a living thing. My yoga practice is a living thing. My spirituality is a living thing. Even being a teacher, I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm still developing. And each day I'm just discovering deeper layers and more things about these essential teachings, which is really humbling to really strip them down, to really peel them back. And sometimes something like acceptance, for example, acceptance 10 years ago meant something to me. What it means to me today is totally different. The same thing with my higher power. What that meant to me 12 years ago, I have a different idea of what my higher power is today. And so I think as long as these things are evolutionary, for me, they stay flexible. It's funny, we use these yoga terms like flexible. I have students sometimes say, I'm not flexible. And I say, well, let's talk about that. I think Uh you're maybe talking about physical flexibility, but are you mentally or emotionally flexible? That might be more important, especially Mm -hmm. in recovery. 
Yeah, I love that. I think at the base, what I hear is presence and mindfulness. Like even if you don't know much about yoga itself and you're not into going into the philosophy, to practice presence with what is happening in your life, to practice mindfulness will help you move on that path, like as a basic principle. But if we do want to talk about philosophy and you talked about those ancient texts, what particular texts do you think can be supportive on this journey? Or how can we apply the yogic principle to our transformation journey, whether or not we're on the recovery path? Because I think we can talk about this on another little kind of side note, but I think the principle of recovery kind of applied to life in general, and they make us just a better person in general. You don't have to want to get out of a particular addiction. And at the same time, I do feel deep down that we're all somewhere on the spectrum of addiction. So there's like two conversations we can have here, but let's start with just the yogic text, and then we can come back to those other things. What texts are you referring to? And what are the main concepts or teachings in this that really inspired you? I read the Yoga Sutras early mm-hmm. on when I started to learn to teach yoga. That was very helpful to read those teachings. I read a couple different translations. I then read the Bhagavad Gita. I read the Upanishads. I started to get more into Buddhism, so I read the Dhammapada. And then I found Thich Nhat Hanh and started reading a lot of his books, which is uh, Buddhism, but a very accessible view. He really stresses mindfulness. And those were the source texts for me that really kind of kicked the door open to help me get into some of the philosophy in a manageable way. Because, I mean, unless we have a degree in this or we study this at a university, it's pretty hard to grab something like the Upanishads and try to figure out what are they talking about here? In the Bhagavad Gita, what is Krishna saying here to Arjuna? And so we need kind of a guide, a teacher. So I found translations and authors that got their hands dirty working with those manuscripts. And I found ways to make it relatable, not just to me, but then when I share these things with students, clients, patients, whoever I'm working with, even friends, I have to figure out a way to make it relevant and engaged as well, make it applied so it works for today. So those are some of the main books that I've used personally for yoga philosophy. Yeah. I did see that you have a course that talks about the yamas and niyamas particularly. Are there any yamas or niyamas that you feel are essential on this path? Yeah, it's funny. It's like all of them. All of them. (laughs) It's interesting because like we talked about a little bit earlier, when I first got a look at those moral codes, the yamas and the niyamas, the self-disciplines, they were these things that were just so lofty. And it was, how am I supposed to live this life? For me personally, it was non-harming, truthfulness, non-stealing, walking with God, brahmacharya, you know, non-greed. You're supposed to be like a god or a saint or something. And I realized, wait a minute, no, there's no perfection here. It's a living thing. It's a practice. And so all of them, it's circular rather than linear. And there's no finish line. It's not a sprint. This is sort of a lifetime thing. So just one, for example, I mentioned Brahmacharya. You know, I, I first read that as celibacy and I thought, wait a second. So that means you have to be a monk. You have to shave your head. You have to go live in a cave in India. What does that mean? And then I since realized that Brahmacharya, I like the definition walking with God, could also just mean uh, reverence, just doing the right thing. Yeah. Refraining from acting out, like we talked about with addiction like or recovery. Yeah. Whatever thing is taking you down the wrong or unwholesome path, 
brahmacharya would be to kind of get back on a different, wholesome, beneficial, positive way of walking your path. And that's one that I really try to work with. I guess on a daily basis, I work with all of them, but try to make sure I'm heading in the right direction. For me, that's brahmacharya, walking Mm -hmm. what would my higher power have me do? Let's do that today, hopefully. Yeah, I see it a lot as moderation, which is maybe not as useful in this particular case, but I also see it as energy conservation. And for me, that's very useful for my personal journey because I tend to overextend a lot my energy. So kind of taking just the one right next step, you know, and that relates to kind of following that guidance. And if you don't have a relationship with God with that big G and necessarily like a direct sense, then those might be also more reachable for people that are like, "Eh, that doesn't really resonate with me. Yeah, I agree. It's neat because just like you said, on certain days, that might make more sense to me where I, you know, I need to, I need to preserve my energy. I'm going to use that aspect of this, of mm-hmm. this, of this principle today. There's a lot of them that are just surface level too, with, uh, you know, cleanliness or purity, um, saucha. It's like, what does that mean? I just brush my teeth and take a shower today? <laughs> a shower. Is that what you're talking about? Like, well, yeah, that at the physical level, that is purity. Basic, but yeah. also your thoughts today. What are your thoughts today? Are you thinking something negative about that person who just did something over there? And it's neat how they just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And on any given day, any one of the definitions might make perfect sense more than another one. And I have to be willing to see, oh, that's a whole different aspect. I didn't see it that way. Oh, so mm-hmm. for you, it's this. And for me, it's this. But then tomorrow, for me, it might be this. And for you, it might be that. And I love there's no, for me personally, this is just my take. There's really no right or wrong way to practice it. Any of these small codes or self-disciplines. And that's the beautiful thing about any of these spiritual principles. They're timeless. They're eternal. You'll get what you're supposed to get when you're supposed to get it. It, Very yogic in that sense. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to worry about what you're supposed to learn next. Don't worry. It'll come to you. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. You say that you work with it kind of on a daily basis. How do you use the Yama and Niyamas to create a personal path towards your inner, outer transformation and for you to stay on track with recovery? Good question. I'll take on Santosha, contentment, and what that means for me today. A lot of these are multidimensional. This one, mm-hmm. for example, is contentment. What does that mean? Financially, am I content? Is it materially? Do I have enough things? Is it spiritually? Do I feel connected to my higher power? Is it contentment? my social circles? Do I have enough followers or likes? And again, this is just where I'm at today with whatever it is I'm thinking about. What am I content with? I'll have a book coming out next year. And it's neat because sometimes I'll start to think about, you know, well, there's going to be publicity and, and there's going to be lists, you know, the bestseller list. Who has more books out than you? And, and where is your book in, in the bookstore? Where can I be content? With or without a bestseller, can I be content if I didn't have the book coming out? Would I still be okay or happy or joyful? What are the conditions for contentment? So it's interesting. And this is something I'll work with patients at the treatment center where I work. And it's funny because a lot of this stuff does, for me personally, I see a lot of connection between these ancient moral codes and something like the 12-step path. So when I was getting sober, there was this old timer, he says, if you can't find happiness, or in this case, contentment, with or without money, you're in trouble. You can't find contentment or happiness with or without an apartment, a job, a girlfriend, you're in big trouble. And you find contentment regardless of outer circumstances, regardless of anything, without an attachment to something, 
And that's something I think we work on in our spiritual journey is, am I content today, even if I'm angry, even if I'm impatient, even if I'm feeling depression or sadness or stress or anxiety or nobody likes me or if everybody likes me, can I find neutrality there? My contentment today is no attachment to whatever is going on. And yeah, it's interesting. And then this stuff shows up in our physical poses. Can you be content if your shoulder is not feeling good and you can't do your warrior two like you normally do or like the person next to you is doing it? Are you feeling jealous because they have a better warrior two pose? Can you be content doing child's pose when everyone else is doing something else? Can you be content not going to yoga because you have some other things to do? So it's really about self-reflection and also kind of observing and studying the way we talk to ourselves through the day and whatever the circumstances are in our life that particular day and kind of taking a little space and watching what we're thinking, what we're doing and why it's happening that way. Absolutely. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, when these things show up, they show up. And as many of us who practice yoga or teach yoga, we start to realize once you know, you can't unknow. Mm -hmm. So when you start being discontent about something you know you shouldn't be discontent about, it's not going to feel so good. And you're going to have to get back on your path. And when you start harming, like ahimsa means non-harming or non-violence, but you're all of a sudden having thoughts that are very harmful to yourself and others, and then you start speaking in ways that are very harmful to yourself and others, you're going to realize, I'm not practicing ahimsa. I'm going to be in big trouble pretty soon. I have to get back onto my path here. Yeah, these things, they're a guideline. It's a framework, 12 steps, the Ten Commandments, the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. You'll start to see, not you, but the general you, anyone who starts to get onto any kind of yogic type of path, there's this outline for how to live life. And if you follow it, you're going to have a pretty peaceful, pretty happy life. It's up to you to follow it now. <laughs> <laughs> you do have choice. And that's part of the process too, recognizing that you do have choice, you do have control, you do have agency over your life and what you make it. So earlier in the conversation, you talked about your yoga practice and how it was helpful to do the inner work, to be present, to be mindful. Do you have specific practices, whether it's on the physical body, like asana or pranayamas or meditation technique that you enjoy using or teaching, particularly for transformation? Or is it about what you're focusing on during that practice that matters? I think, uh, since you mentioned, I think this is something great. So the conversation isn't just about recovery, so it's for everybody. Some of the things that I'll teach, and this is interesting because I'll teach these. I work in a treatment center, but these are teachings or principles and lessons that can be applied to anything. So whether or not someone has a problem with any kind of addiction can be applied to impatience or sadness or loss or grief or financial insecurity, anything. So one thing I'm thinking of off the top of my head is, the concept of drishti. Drishti is a focal point or a focal gaze. Mm -hmm. So usually in a physical pose, a teacher will suggest that students, practitioners, pick a drishti, find a drishti, find one spot to look at, either on the wall in front of you, on the ground, or just off in the distance. And whatever happens, just try to keep looking at that spot, keep breathing. What usually happens is it really helps us with our physical balance, but not just that, our mental clarity, our emotional clarity. All of a sudden, we figured out how to concentrate. We figured out how to stay present. Now, if you can take that off the mat into the world, the next time you're having a conversation with somebody and they really want to tell you something, you're going to use them as your drishti. They're going to be your focal point. You're going to be a safe place. People and you are going listen to want to better. talk to you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You're going to be present. 
and your mind is going to be still, your emotional state will be in a place where people can come to you and talk to you because you already figured out how to stay present, how to pick one thing and just stick and stay with that one thing, how to concentrate. The term that I like to describe this is acrograta, means single-pointed focus. It's like laser focus. You won't be looking at your phone. You won't be distracted. These are the people I want to come to. If I have a problem or something I need to talk about, I want to find somebody who knows how to apply that principle, how to pick something and just stay with it, stay present, stay with me, that kind of idea. Because we all know what it's like to be around people who are just not present. It's not fun. You don't feel seen. You don't feel understood. You don't feel supported. Like You feel kind of lonely even though you're with that person and you're trying to share or ask for support. Absolutely. It's a throwaway kind of thing. If you think about it, yoga teachers say, all right, pick a spot, just look at it, and just try to keep breathing and just keep looking at that spot. That's huge. If you can figure out how to take that concept off the mat into the world, everything you do will have that singleness of purpose. You'll be able to just literally keep your eyes on the prize and don't stop whatever it is you're doing until you get to where you need to go. And you're learning to center yourself. You're learning to ground yourself. You're learning other principles as well with just this one tiny little thing of the practice. Yeah. And we've already talked about mindfulness and presence. So you put that together. And then there's even more things. I'm thinking stress management. I'm thinking body awareness. Like those are also two little things that I think we can apply to our life off the mat in a way that's super useful day to day. Yeah. Yeah. Another thought that just came to mind is a lot of us have different ways of practicing physical poses, whether we have an injury or we just have a specific style that we like. So if we're given the space in a class, if we're encouraged to find our own practice, to modify poses, to make them our own, to individualize and personalize them, again, if we can take what we learn by doing that off the mat into the world, we're going to be able to start our own business. We're going to be able to blaze our own trail. We're going to be able to do that because we figured out physically how to take something that everyone else seems to be doing, we make it our own, and then we go out into the world and we're not so scared to start our own company or whatever the thing might be because we already figured out on the map. Think outside the box. Yes, exactly. I know how to do it. Everyone else did it this way, but that doesn't work for me because I have an injury, so I did it this way. And, Mm -hmm. And then out in the world when everyone else is doing it that way, you're going to figure out how to do it your way. And it's still going to work because it's yours. It's personal. It's coming from an intuitive place. You can't teach these things. It has to be a felt thing. It's an embodied thing. That's why I love to get on the yoga mat. It's like this little laboratory. It's a science experiment. You get on your mat, figure out who you are, (laughs) what you're doing, why you're here. You get off the mat and get out into the world and go be awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And even at the beginning, it teaches you to give yourself permission to do different, to be different, to make your own choices, to not take everything that everybody says as, you know, what you should be doing. And it teaches you acceptance that maybe you need to do different and that is okay. And just being accepting of your body in that moment, your energy in that moment, your capacity in that moment. And that can also ripple into your life. That's a huge skill. Yes. Most people, myself included. When I would see other people, when I was starting to practice yoga, doing things I couldn't do, I felt inferior, I felt weak, I felt they were real yogis, I was the pretender in the room, I was a fake, I wasn't good enough, until I finally had found some teachers that encouraged me to do it my own way, modify, 
Use blocks, use straps, use bolsters, use props. Go up against the wall. If you can't kick up into a handstand, go against the wall. There's no shame. There's no embarrassment. Yoga is not a competition. It's not a group sport. And I heard enough good teachers tell me these things, and I thought, I'm going to trust them. And I figured out how to do it, and then I was no longer in competition with other people. Mm. That's a cool thing. You get off the mat into the world. You're unique. You have a reason to be here. No one else can do what you're here to do. So unless you know how to figure out how to do your own thing on the mat, you're not going to be able to figure out how to do it out there in the world. It's not two separate things. So that's the cool thing. You empower yourself and you're going to practice. You'll empower yourself out in the world and you're going to inspire others too. Mm -hmm. And this is how, and you were talking about this in your intro, that we get to live a life that's more purposeful. We have more meaning. Right. So how do we use like actively the lessons that we can learn about transformation or the lessons we can learn in the yogic text? How do we use those to move towards more purpose if we're feeling a little lost or like we're not quite on the path that we're meant to be? A lot of what we just talked about was the physicality of the practice and all the cool things that we learn by doing mm -hmm. a physical practice. Now, a bird has two wings. So if one of those wings is the physical, we also have to have the more contemplative or meditative wing. So along with the physical practice, meditation, any kind of introspective practice, it could even be journaling or just walking in nature. We have to have also a time that's not so physically active. Mm -hmm. This is just take it or leave it for anyone who's listening. Those quiet times, the moments of stillness, I believe that's when a lot of the intuitive thoughts come that guide us toward our purpose. So it, it's a twofold practice, whereas we learn a lot of things physically. Physically, the body shifts, the body stores emotions, feelings, memories, expectations, attachments, all kinds of things start to move around. But unless we also have some quiet time to process all the stuff that was coming up in the practice, we won't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, in my meditations, I find a lot of my purpose, whether it's an idea for a new course or it's who I should call next, or email next, or what I should do next in the next fill-in-the-blank. I've had a lot of insights come in meditation, and believe me, I'm not special or unique. I didn't go to some special swami or guru. These are available to anyone, but the hardest part is they're usually only available in stillness and in silence, which is really hard for a lot of us to get there. So those two things go together. Physical practice, as many people who practice yoga know, Final pose is Shavasana. Whole practice is leading toward stillness. We sweat. We're just doing all these <laughs> poses one after the other. If it's a one-hour class, you're just moving, 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 moving. And then the final thing is what? You're going to lay there for about 10 minutes maybe and just do nothing. And I think that's when things get integrated. That's when you receive the true benefits of the practice. So my physical practice, I wouldn't say it's waned over the years, but I'm not doing such a vigorous style practice that I was doing 15, 20 years ago. A lot of it is a lot more fluid. It's a lot more subtle. And I'm getting more from the other side of it these days, which is the meditation aspect of it. Maybe I'm just getting older. <laughs> but, the seasons uh, of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's where my practice has been. It's more restorative, more yin, relaxing, a lot of sound, music, yeah, and breathing. You mentioned pranayama. Yes, yeah, so definitely breath work. A lot of breathing is very helpful in helping us find our purpose. It's hard to know what you're supposed to do if you can't breathe. It's hard to live life if you can't breathe. That's another thing we also learn in our poses. If you're in a pose that you don't like, notice what comes up. Are you holding your breath? Are you getting angry? Notice also you can breathe through that. 
And then if that can happen on the mat, that can happen out in the world. When you get into a situation you don't like and you can't breathe, you get anxious, you can breathe through that. You just prove it to yourself on your mat, not do it out there in the world. So breathing is really helpful practice as well. But it's hard to breathe consciously if you don't know you're doing it. <laughs> so we learn this in our practice. Breathe consciously, move mindfully. And then out in the world, you do the same thing. And your purpose will reveal itself. I guess I gave a long answer to get to this. Our purpose reveals itself. I think most of us know in our heart what we're here to do. What's usually lacking is the action. Just do it. And usually maybe there's some fear in the way. There's some hesitation. There's some old ideas, some conditioned behaviors, limiting beliefs. I can't do it. I don't know how to do it. I'm not sure if any of that's true, to be honest. You know, when I first became a yoga teacher, I thought, I, you know, the same thing a lot of people think. I don't know what I'm doing. And so many other teachers are doing this so much better. I don't know how to build a website. All these weird fears. And at some point, we do it. The neat thing about working in recovery is you are looking at life and death. And a lot of the hesitation starts to fade away. Maybe it is just getting older as well, just kind of growing spiritually. There's not a lot of time to hesitate. You know, if you're here to do something, do it. Maybe if anyone's listening and thinking, oh, I know what I want to do, but I don't know when. Uh, now. Try now. Yeah, Maybe start now. now. Start imperfect. Start messy. Start now. Yeah. Stutter step your way into it. Even fall a few times and yeah. get back up. You'll learn something each time you get back up. Keep going. The purpose is neat. I think my purpose has been the same for many years. It shifts, though. It looks different. Mm -hmm. I thought I was a yoga teacher, and then all of a sudden I was asked to record certain things for a meditation app, so I did that. And then I was asked to write some things for a website, and I did that, and I wrote a book, and I'm a father now. So all of a sudden, my purpose is, I guess I'm a, a it's writer, I guess I'm a teacher, I guess I'm a dad, I, <laughs> I guess I'm all of it. I guess that's all my purpose. Yeah, that evolves yeah. too. I love it. Earlier, you were talking about how growth, transformation, recovery, it's a journey and we have never fully arrived. We are never fully done. I would love to know one lesson that you are still learning or that has been really difficult for you to learn. Like for me, surrender has always been a challenge and something that I have to go back to a lot and continue to work on. So I wonder what would be yours? I shared this story recently, but I'll, I'll share it again. My daughter is eight years old and a few years ago, This was pretty gutsy for a five-year-old to say. This is what she told me. She said, I was waiting for her to get her shoes on in the morning so we can go to school. And I guess I was standing there. My energy must have been you know, kind of a hurry up, hurry up, let's go, let's go. And I said, let's get your shoes on. And she said, Daddy, you're not a very patient guy. <laughs> and I remember standing there in the kitchen and I'm thinking, do you know what I do for a living? I teach patience. I teach meditation and yoga. I How dare you? And I didn't say that, but I thought, wait a second. My next thought was, wow, I guess that's it. I guess that's the lesson I'm supposed to learn. I have to learn how to be a little more patient because a five-year-old has no reason to lie to me. He's not making it up. Mm -hmm. And so I became acutely aware of moments after that when I would feel I was starting to get impatient, whether it was at the grocery store, at the gas station, at work, with coworkers, with neighbors, whatever it was, I would feel, oh, this is what she's talking about. She's right. I do have a little more work to do on my patient. And the humility that I was finding in becoming more patient, that was growth and that was transformation. And I don't think I'm done with that journey either. I still get impatient. I still get all of them angry. Oh, yeah, of uh, course. 
everything, you know, whatever it might be. I, I get sad sometimes. I could just speak for myself. I haven't transcended the catalog of human emotionality. I could still fall into That's not the point those. either, right? Like we still want to experience the full spectrum of what it means to be a human. Yeah, absolutely. And so I was working on patience because my daughter said I wasn't so patient. And I've felt the difference. And she hasn't said that since. And it's neat because I'm still working on it. And I'm still working on some other things as well. It's neat. When I first got sober, I had a really, really hard time showing emotion. Something I had shoved away, I'd stuffed away for so long. A lot of alcoholics and addicts will talk about this. That's why we use drugs and alcohol, because we have emotions or feelings or trauma or stuff we don't want to think about or feel. So let's just go ahead and pour some stuff on top of it and over it and let's keep it as far away as possible. And then all of a sudden we take away the substances and it's all right there. And so for me, it was just, oh my gosh. And I really had a hard time processing all that. So I didn't get emotional a lot, meaning I wasn't able to cry. I wasn't able to really be aware. I had to figure out how to name these things, how to actually recognize them, how to actually befriend them. Like, okay, what's this one? What is this? This is remorse? Is this what I'm feeling? I don't even know. I think this is guilt. I think this is shame. I think I'm embarrassed. I don't know. What am I, jealous? I have no idea. So I'm just starting to figure out how to shed tears sometimes for certain things. It's long overdue. So I'm still working on that, just getting really, really emotional. Um, not in a cliche way, but you know, yeah, really letting the sadness come over me. Really taking the time to be with it. Don't just go, oh yeah. There was a spiritual teacher I heard years ago. She said something like, You have thirty tears to cry, you cry all thirty. Don't rush it. That's what I'm starting to figure out in my journey is you need to be sad, be sad. Don't go, Oh, time's up. Let's move on. You took That's too enough. long there. <laughs> Thank you for sharing on this. I always want to make sure that people listen to myself and the guest. And it's not about not putting people on pedestal, but recognizing that we're all human and they don't feel that imposter syndrome you were talking about in the beginning, right? Like stepping into someone you want to learn from, but also seeing the humanity in everybody. I think that's lovely. So thank you for your vulnerability. Anything you want to add before we finish? If there's like one takeaway you'd like listeners to leave with, what would that be today? Transformation is possible for anyone, whether you're in recovery or not, whether you're healthy, whether you're sick, male, female, rich, poor. It's an interesting topic, transformation. Uh, For me, it's personally, I've experienced it through recovery, but it's available for anybody. And it doesn't have to be yoga philosophy. It doesn't have to be Buddhism. It could be anything. I go outside sometimes and I just look at the trees. That's a form of spirituality. I see transformation all around me. Just look at a tree. In the autumn, it looks different than when it does in the winter. That's transformation. Transformation is just moving from one thing into the next. It doesn't have to be huge leaps. It could be tiny little steps along the way. I think it's important because I think a lot of us, especially people when we're looking to, to listen to podcasts and read books and grow and develop spiritually and I think we're looking to change something and need to know that it's already happening. You are transforming and it's incremental. Sometimes they're huge shifts, sometimes they're they're smaller, but we're all on the path together and we're all getting there together. and (laughs) And there's no point of hurrying, like you were saying with the tears, it's the same with transformation. You have to be patient. Yeah, I think wherever you are, it's good. Beautiful. It's time to do something next. Do that. And the next right thing, the next right thing. And then... Before you know it, you look back and go, whoa, look how far I've come. How did I get over here? I used to be over there. Yeah. 
that's always a good moment where you look back and you're like, wow, I've come so far because the day-to-day doesn't always feel like that. So it's always a good reminder to like, just keep going. And at some point you'll turn back and you'll see something different. I'll put all your info in the show notes, of course. But in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you if they want to ask more questions or they'd like to work with you in some way? Where do they go? What do you have going on in your world right now? Listeners can visit my website, brianhymanyoga.com. I have some courses and meditations on Insight Timer, the meditation app and website. I think that's a good starting point. I have an email newsletter. You can find that through my website. Put in your email and I'll send out a newsletter every once in a while with some new offerings. Are you set on the title of the book? Yeah, so far. I think so. (laughs) Can you share it yet or is it a secret? No, I'll share it. I think I can. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, it's like those non-disclosure agreements and you shoot a movie and can't tell anybody what scenes are. Uh, the book is Recovery with Yoga, Supportive Practices for Transcending Addiction. Love it. So we'll yeah. look for it next year, you said, in 2024? 2024, Shambhala Publications. Amazing. Thank you for being here today, Brian. Thanks, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't already done so, leave your review for this episode of the podcast in general on iTunes. It truly, truly helps people find us. And if this episode has helped you in any way, then you can pass it on and help someone else on their journey by leaving your review. Plus, when you leave a review to say thank you, I will give you access to our premium membership for free for a full month. All you have to do is send me a screenshot of your review and we'll get you all set up. You'll find the show notes for this episode at ericabelanger.com slash 195. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening. I'll see you next Monday.